0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter ten. Luke chapter ten. A few weeks back, uh, Ryan Tannehill is a quarterback for the Tennessee Titans in the NFL, uh, and he was interviewed. And in this interview, a reporter asked Tannehill if he was going to mentor the new up-and-coming quarterback that the Tennessee Titans had drafted earlier in the year. Would you mentor this young man who... The Titans are planning on making or are are hoping to be your eventual successor. So Ryan Tannehill Tannehill answered back, essentially, look, I'm not going to be unhelpful to him. I'm not going to go out of my way to, to sabotage him. Surely he will learn from me just by being around me. But at the same time, No. It's not my job. It's not my job to mentor this man. Not my job. That's the message. News cycles picked this up and they ran with it. And people with opinions began to weigh in. And as you know, people have opinions. And so some people felt like this was out of bounds. Um, the, The rules of professionalism, dictate that you raise up the younger generation and you teach them the ropes regardless of what that means for you personally. Whereas others were saying, this guy's gunning for his job. Why should he help him in the slightest? Like this is a dog eat dog sort of world. Now, wherever, regardless of wherever you fall here and what you think is right for this quarterback to do, objectively at the end of the day, Ryan Tannehill is not paid to mentor this young quarterback. If you were to somehow look up his job description, if they have job descriptions for quarterbacks in the NFL, and we were to get that sheet of paper, one of the bullet points will not say mentor the eventual successor, your replacement. That's just a fact of the matter. It is technically not his job to mentor his replacement. But this got me thinking about us and the church. And it made me think about myself and my role here at Grace. And you see, uh, raising up your eventual replacement may not be in the job description of an NFL quarterback. But it is the job of the church. It is our job. It is part of the job description for Christians. Ephesians 4 is a passage that we're familiar with here at Grace. Uh, And Ephesians 4.12 says that God has given gifted leaders to the church to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, we are to be disciples who make disciples. Disciples who make disciples. And the more I think about the mission of the church, Like what we've been commissioned to do, what we are called to do, what our job is of the church. I think this is a helpful phrase to summarize what we are to do. We are disciples who make disciples. I think we need to get that inside of us. We need to internalize that idea. If we are in Christ, then we are disciples. We are those who know God and we are following Christ, being formed by Christ, uh, being made to look more like Christ. That that is part of what we are, but we're not the lone ranger quarterback who's looking out for himself. No, instead we are disciples who are trying to get as many people, as many people as humanly possible, in on our joy, and our peace, and our satisfaction. And the mercy and the grace and ultimately the salvation that we experience. We gladly make disciples. And that's ultimately what I believe our passage is about this morning. Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem as we learned last week. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And now... He's turning to his disciples, and he's saying, are you going to come with me? We're on our way to Jerusalem. Are you coming to Jerusalem with me? Well, here's what it takes. Here's what it takes to get there. And so Jesus is continuing to form his disciples. He's going to send his disciples out. He's going to commission them with an incredible task. He's going to give them lots of instruction. And then he's going to tell them why. Why they should be concerned with making disciples. Why they should be disciples who make disciples. Disciple making disciples. He's going to get them to Jerusalem. And he's going to get them to glory beyond that. So three points this morning. Building off of what has already been shared this morning, found people, find people. That's the center. That's what we are talking about this morning. Found people, find people. Two, the lost will be judged. The lost will be judged. And finally, the found will be blessed. The found will be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together today in Jesus' name, as the blessed ones. And Father, I pray that you would bless us and that you would be present with us, causing us to hear your word and to be shaped by it, formed by it, so that we might adore Jesus. Praise things in Christ's name, amen. All right, found people, find people. We're gonna see this in Luke 10:1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles open, follow along with me as I read. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. All right. Again, main thing that we want to see in these verses today is that found people, find people. And If I could take two seconds to commend Kenny Clark. Um, what's pretty often whenever I'm preaching, and I think this is true for most people when they preach on Sunday mornings, is I end up talking with Kenny a lot about it. We run things by each other. But Kenny is the one who shared this phrase, found people, find people, uh, with me. And I it's pretty indicative of the way that kenny engages the the preached word and and what's coming off of the stage week in and week out and i'm so grateful for his continued ministry and ensuring that we are a people who are saturated in the word and the gospel so thank you kenny Uh, i want you guys to know the sort of labor that this man undertakes and how good of a friend he is to people like me but the point is found people, find people. And, and really at the heart of this passage is the idea of mission, mission. And we see that from the get-go. Verse one, the Lord appoints. The Lord appoints, an aside. It's amazing that this passage begins with a divine title for Jesus. Who appoints? Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Lord The one with power, the one with authority, the one with might. And the disciples are about to realize just how true this statement is. This passage refers to Jesus as Lord three different times. We'll see that throughout this passage. It also is a passage that talks about Jesus and his unique relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. And so part of what's happening here is we're seeing Jesus held up as the glorious preeminent one. This is a passage that should fix our eyes on Jesus and enable us to worship him. We're not going to go too deep into the character of Jesus here, but know that it's there. And that might make for a good grace group discussion. So what does the Lord Jesus do? He appoints and he sends. Jesus appoints 72 others and he sends them out two by two. Now, why is this passage about mission? A couple of important things to consider here. First, Jesus is broadening who is involved in his mission. You might remember back in Luke 9, just a chapter ago, feels like a very long time ago but jesus sent out the 12 the 12 disciples he commissions them he commissions them and he tasks them and he sends them out and that makes sense right i mean they're the 12 they're they're the inner circle they're the ones that jesus is personally discipling they're the ones he went and called uniquely by name they're the special ones they're the ones who are going to go on and accomplish great things. They're going to write the New Testament. They're going to perform all these signs and wonders. They're going to be martyred for their faith. They're the high and the exalted ones in these stories, right? The 12 It makes sense and he would commission them and he would send them out. But now, what we're seeing here is that Jesus is not going to reserve this special task for just the twelve. Here we see Jesus expand who will be a part of advancing God's kingdom. It's not just the 12. It's not just the, the ones with accolades. It's not just the one with accomplishments. Now, to be sure, I'm making a point here. I know that the 12 blunder around and mess up a lot. So I'm not trying to say anything otherwise. But, but we can imagine the 12 as, as being the ones who deserve a special commission. But here we're seeing it's not reserved for just the special people. It's being spread out more generally. The 72 represent Jesus' disciples collectively. Jesus' followers as a whole are being sent out. This is something that is to characterize the followers of Christ. And so what we're seeing here is is that at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is being appointed and being sent out. Appointed to service and sent out on mission. It's what it means to be a disciple. This is the idea behind the priesthood of all believers that we champion here at Grace. If you are in Christ... Regardless of how mature you are, regardless of how much you know, regardless of how much you nail being a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. You are a priest and a member of God's royal priesthood, meaning that you are uniquely able to show people God and bring them to God. And so when Jesus commissions his followers, he does something unique. He changes Something about their identity. They are now sent ones who make disciples. Put another way, the gospel says we were a lost people, but now we're found. And as the point says, found people, find people. I think we, we have to see this as applying to us as well. Again, there's a broadening of mission here. It's not just for the elite. Whoever that is in your mind, it's not just for the 12. No, this is broadened out to all of us who know God. We are a people who follow Christ and are therefore commissioned to make disciples. You today are a found person. And so therefore you today are a people who is sent, who are sent to find people. What we're, we're supposed to get just from this very first verse. And so Jesus appoints and he sends out the 72 on a mission. And he gives them some instructions, he gives them some warnings. And some of these are a bit odd and are certainly unique to the 72's mission uh, because of the time and place they were in, because of the unique point in redemption history that they were in. And so not all of these are going to apply perfectly to us. Still, we can glean some incredible principles about mission from these following verses. Uh, Some principles about what it means to be a disciple who makes disciples. So a few principles about what being a disciple-making disciple involves. First, it involves trust. It involves trust. Our passage has a very well-known verse contained in it. And that is verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And and so we have this passage that Jesus wants his disciples to get. This concept that Jesus wants his disciples to get in grace. He wants us, us to get it today too. There is a harvest out there. There is a crop that is ripe for picking. The fields are white and the problem is a labor shortage. The problem is that there are not harvesters to go and to grab hold of that harvest. And so as I read that, it makes me want to get busy. It makes me want to to yell and to shout and try to motivate. It makes me want to hit the streets and, and go and get this job done. Jesus says, in light of this plentiful harvest and this labor shortage, here's what you do pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And the context here shows us that he's speaking of himself. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would rise up laborers. Jesus is building his church. And he is going to supply the workers. He is going to be the primary actor. And so before this is a call to get after it, it's a call to humble, desperate prayer. What do we do as a church in light of the labor shortage, in light of the fact that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few? We depend on Jesus to build his church through prayer. We have to trust God, being a disciple, making disciple also involves danger. Involves danger. Verse three says, uh, gives us some pretty sobering news, uh, a warning. Jesus says that he is sending his disciples out as lambs amongst the wolves. You know what sort of a defense a lamb has against a wolf? They don't have one. That's their defense. They just get eaten. That's what lambs do when they are around wolves. Jesus isn't saying that a life of mission, being a disciple-making disciple is going to be easy and full of rainbows and butterflies. He's not saying that lambs have a secret cachet of knives to fight off wolves. Like that's not what's going on here. He's saying you're gonna get eaten. You're going to be devoured. Proclaiming Jesus, making disciples in Jesus' name puts us at risk. Know that. Be confronted with that. We have to know that. But while a lamb doesn't have a natural defense against a wolf, that's not to say the lamb is always helpless. You see, lambs have shepherds. Lambs have shepherds and shepherds fight for their sheep. They protect lambs. They protect Sheep. Now, Jesus, our good shepherd, as Mark Dever says, is in the business of protecting the flock by making wolves into sheep. That's the idea here. Jesus is going to send us out as lambs amongst the wolves so that we might make lambs out of the wolves. So we might bring these wolves into the flock of God. But it's dangerous. Inherently dangerous. Being a disciple-making disciple involves dependence and urgency. Jesus gives a lot of commands in these verses. If you were just to underline the amount of commands in verses 1-12, through there's quite a few. And some of them are hard. Some of them are weird. Some of them are just sort of rude. Uh, So Jesus says, here's how you go. With no money bag, no change of clothes, no extra sandals, no greeting people on the note on the road, receiving hospitality, staying in people's houses. It's a pretty intense list. It goes from Jesus commanding what might seem unwise to what might seem mean. So uh, two big things that I think we need to see here. First, Jesus is saying that if we are going to be successful in this mission, We're going to have to rely on Jesus for our provision. You will not be sufficient in yourself. So you have to rely on my sufficiency is what Jesus is saying. Have you ever been glamping? Have you ever heard of glamping? I think some people at Grace might be glamping right now. It's this idea that we're going to go camping, but we're going to make it as easy as possible. We're going to take a big RV. We're going to have memory foam mattresses. We're going to have... TVs on the wall, there's an actual stove and a full pantry. Meanwhile, you've got other people who are, you know, taking a a tent that takes two hours to put up and have to boil their water and they have to sleep ultimately outside because they couldn't get their tent up. There's a difference between glamping and normal camping, right? Glamping is camping made easy. Jesus isn't sending his disciples out to go glamping. He's not sending them out with a, a stocked full pantry, No, he's saying if if you're going to go and be successful, you're going to have to rely completely on my provision. He's also not sending them out with with some some unique sales tactics to say, hey, you know, if you pull up to the sales meeting in a nice car with the the right clothes, then you have a better shot of success. He's saying, no, 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 you're going to go upon my sufficiency. My gospel is what will be attractive, All of it rests on me. You are completely dependent on me to be successful in this mission. At the same time, secondly, he says that this mission is urgent. It's so urgent that you aren't even to stop and greet somebody on the road. This would have been a scandal in Jesus' time. There there is a, a... Cultural greeting that ought to take place on the road when you pass somebody by. And Jesus is saying that this thing that I'm calling you to is so important, so urgent that it's like you're supposed to have blinders on and you just go right past that person because the days are evil. Because people are dying apart from knowledge of God. Every once in a while, I'll be walking around here at Grace and I have some urgent task that I'm getting to and somebody will say hey to me and I just bust by them and I, and I feel terrible, I'll wave or something, but I have to go and the reason why is because what I'm doing is urgent. It requires my attention in that exact moment. And Jesus is saying, this mission that I've given to you, it's that, it, it requires that sort of urgency. The, the point is that, that life and death are at stake so it ought to be at the forefront of our minds. It's a hand-to-the-plow sort of mission. It requires dependence and urgency. And finally, disciple making, disciples making disciples involves rejection. Finally, rejection. Jesus wants to prepare his disciples for the inevitable shut doors. For the inevitable turned shoulders to be scoffed at, to be turned back. By strangers, by friends, by family, by coworkers. Rejection is a part of the gig. It's part of the job. Jesus says that this life of mission involves proclaiming peace. Now, in this context, what I think peace is, is the message of salvation. It's shorthand for the gospel message. Some will receive that peace as sons of peace, while others sadly Will not. And as great as it is to be received by one of these sons of peace, Jesus' disciples have to know that not everyone will receive it. It doesn't matter how kind, how winsome, how brilliant you are. It doesn't matter how well crafted your presentation is. Some people will simply say no. Rejection is part of the job. Jesus' disciples are disciples who make disciples, and God is oh so faithful to utilize them so that others would come to know him and have his peace rest upon them, but some will remain lost. Jesus isn't giving us an exhaustive list of what characterizes the life of mission, of disciples, making disciples, but he is giving some very important principles. The life of mission is going to involve trust, danger, dependence, urgency, and rejection. It's going to be tough. Last week, Eric led us to consider that there is no crown without a cross, right? Jesus has set his face upon Jerusalem. And the cross of Christ is waiting upon him in Jerusalem. It's going to be tough. Salvation is going to come through suffering. And then he also showed us that from Luke 9, that there is a cost associated with following Jesus, right? We laid down our lives for the sake of knowing Jesus. We die with Christ so that we might live with Christ. And here we're seeing some of what that entails. Discipleship calls us... Uh, puts a call upon our lives to live for something bigger and for something better than ourselves. In our passage, we see that entails stewarding our lives so that others would know God, so that others would enjoy God. And so Grace, two things comes to mind about this. First, do we have it clearly in our heads that this is the job? Do we get that? Do we understand that this is the job? Disciples are people who know Jesus and are people who labor so that others would know Jesus. Like in your mind, is being a Christian something that you can do sort of like Ryan Tannehill in the NFL? I'm going to grow myself. I'm going to grow in my role, but I'm not concerned about raising up that next person. I'm not concerned about initiating them into the family. And I'm not concerned about helping them to be comfortable and grow in the family. Not my job. I'm concerned about myself. Grace, it is our job. It is our job. Who do we expect? will tell our neighbors about the gospel, about Jesus. If it's not our job, whose job is it? Who will do this? Who's going to tell our family members about Jesus? There's no other solution. This is the plan. God has purposed to utilize his church, to utilize us, to be a people who would go and proclaim his excellencies. And if it's not us, then who is it? We are the found. We are the people that God has commissioned to go and find people. This is the gig. May that be firmly in our minds, and our hearts. Second, do we give ourselves to the task? Do we give ourselves to the task? Are we following Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem? Are we actually leveraging our time, our energy, our money, our relationships so that Jesus' name would be known in all the earth? It's going to look different for all of us. I just... Uh, as some of you know, entered into a season of youth sports and all of a sudden, for the first time in a while, I I have a ton of access to non-believers and to struggling believers who just sit next to me all the time and are really interested in talking to me because my kid plays sports with them. And so all of a sudden, I have opportunities to talk about people, talk to people about the gospel and about Jesus and his sufficiency and his glory. And it's really informal, but it's sweet. But then you have people like Ben Orr who stewards his life to make disciples in this formal disciple-making ministry in in the FCA. And so he hosts baseball camps and he receives collegiate athletes from all over the country and they go to Mexico and they, they do all of these formal things so that they might be made mature disciples of Jesus. It's gonna look different for all of us. It might be informal like moms and dads talking to other moms and dads in the pickup line at school or at the ball field. Or it might look like uh, a roommate talking to another roommate, a housemate talking to a housemate. It may look like buying up your time with your coworkers. It might look like uh, 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 just spending time with your children and discipling your children. Or it might be more formal like volunteering with the FCA or volunteering at Grace or being a part of Adventure Week. Realizing that one of the key periods of time that people come to know Jesus is, is when they are young. And so, Utilizing those formal opportunities to serve that we have here at Grace. Regardless, this is one of those key gospel identities that we must reckon with. We're we're missing out on the job if all we're concerned about is growing ourselves rather than helping others to know God and then grow in Him as well. We are the found. God has reached into the darkness and he's grabbed hold of us. He's brought us near. He's given us a new name, an identity, a future, a hope. How's he going to do that with others? By utilizing us, the found, to go after the lost and find them. Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest. I don't wanna be someone who ignores that statement. So before we move along, why don't we just pray? Would two or three of you pray that the Lord would work to raise up workers from the harvest? Amen. All right. So we are the found and found people find people. And one of the massive reasons why that is so important is because the lost will be judged. So we're going to see in verses 13 through 16. So follow along with me as I read. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable... In the day of judgment, for Tyre and Sidon, then for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So again, in these verses, we have some pretty intense language and a tough truth. A truth that I think ought to sober us as the found in the truth that ought to motivate us towards the lost. The lost will be judged. You might have noticed in the previous section that uh, when the disciples were given some uh, instructions about being rejected, they were told that if a town doesn't receive them, that they are to go out into the public area of the town and they are to publicly wipe the dust off of their feet. And that is an odd thing to command of the disciples, isn't it? That may not make a lot of sense to us, but this is a common enough idea in the days that the Bible is written. Uh, and in Jewish culture, you may remember that just a chapter ago, uh, we saw a similar idea being commanded in Luke 9. We also see this in the book of Acts, we see it in the other gospels, and in the Old Testament. Uh, This is something that the Jewish people would do whenever they would exit a Gentile region as a way to ritually cleanse themselves. At the same time, this wiping the dust off their feet served as a sign, uh, a sign of judgment upon the Gentiles who did not receive God and ultimately rejected God. And so here, the idea of wiping dust off of the disciples' feet said that the towns that didn't receive them were uh, uh, recognizing these towns should have received God. These towns were accountable to God for their rejection. Judgment now rests upon them. What does Jesus say about this? Woe to these towns. Woe to Chorazin. Woe to Bethsaida. Woe to Capernaum. Terrible judgment is coming upon them to the degree that it will make Sodom seem like a walk in the park. Why? Why all of this judgment? The answer is found in verse 16. To reject those who Jesus sends as his heralds and his emissaries is to reject Jesus himself. And to reject Jesus is to reject the father. To reject the message of the gospel that the disciples were bringing to these towns was to reject God himself. Rejecting the gospel is not simply preferring a different worldview over that of Christianity. Christianity. It's not thinking differently about the nature of reality. It's not a polite decline. No, rejecting Jesus and his gospels is serious. It's rejecting God. It's personal. And what happens when you reject God? Well, if we were to go back to what happened to Sodom in Genesis 19, here's what we find happened to Sodom. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked behind him, looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Our passage says that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it will be for these towns that reject Jesus. I don't know if you caught what Genesis 19 said, but but it said fire rained down from heaven and ate up all the stuff in Sodom. Fire and sulfur rained down on people, on livestock, on everything that's green that's living, and it devoured it. And there's a greater judgment coming for those who reject Jesus. That's intense. A few things that I think are worth gleaning from the section of Luke 10 this morning. First, as odd as it sounds, this is meant to be an encouragement and a form of discipleship for Jesus' followers. What do I mean? Jesus is telling his disciples that because they belong to Jesus, because they belong to Jesus, they are so bound up with him. That to reject them and their message is to personally reject Jesus and God the Father. Jesus wants to encourage his followers by showing them the depth of intimacy that exists between them. That's how they are going to endure rejection. By knowing Christ and experiencing the life-giving union that flows to them. And Grace, that principle is true for us as well. Our lives are hid in Christ. And if we've been buried with Christ, then we have been raised with Christ. The life we now live, we live in Christ, in his spirit. We are bound up in Christ. We cannot be understood apart from our relationship with Jesus and our knowledge of God. And so for us, for believers today, for Jesus' present day disciples, there too is a depth of intimacy that exists that can enable us to endure rejection and endure hardship. And this is what Jesus offers his disciples and it's what he offers us today in light of the monumental task that is before us. I'm with you and I love you You're mine, and you're hidden me. To reject you is to reject me. And so we're simply experiencing something of Christ's sufferings when we suffer on his behalf. Second, though, I think this passage is a passage that shows us how terrible it is to turn from Jesus, how terrible of an offense it is to reject Jesus. If you're familiar with Genesis 19, then you know that there's some serious sin going down in Sodom. There's sexual deviancy, there's deviance, there's uh, gross sexual immorality, there's incredible acts of injustice committed against others. It is a bad place. And still, what does Luke 10 hold up as the sin that results in greater judgment? Is it the gross sexual sin of Genesis 19, or is it the refusal to receive the peace offered in Jesus' name through his disciples? Rejecting Jesus results in everlasting judgment. And to be sure, this passage isn't trying to drive a wedge between uh, knowing God and what God calls us to. It's not trying to present a sort of false dichotomy, but it is highlighting the terror of not knowing God personally through the Son. And it's saying there's a real penalty to being lost. To be lost is to be under, under everlasting conscious judgment. But grace... We're the found. We're the found. And what do the found do? Found people find people. Found people realize that there are lost people out there and we move towards them. We proclaim the peace of God. We proclaim the salvation of God. We proclaim the gospel. We put Jesus as the solution to this judgment problem So that people might be reconciled to God. May we be ministers of reconciliation. So all in all, I wouldn't say this is the most optimistic of passages thus far, right? Jesus appoints and he sends out his followers on a mission, but it's going to be a really hard mission. They're going to be despised and rejected and judgment is coming on those people who reject them. So good luck. Final point, the found will be blessed. The found will be blessed. Let me read from verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority over, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is a comedy, not a tragedy. Everything about Luke 10 is setting us up to see things come to a tragic conclusion. That's not what happened, is it? The disciples return and they are ecstatic. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. The mission was a raging success to the point where the power of God and the power of the kingdom was worked through them. Now this is extraordinary because Jesus didn't promise them that this would happen. You might remember back in Luke 9 when Jesus commissions his disciples to go, he promises them that they will have a sort of inherent power. The power of the kingdom will be worked through them, and so they will have authority over demons. They will have the ability to heal the sick in a special, miraculous sort of way. That was the promise to the 12. That wasn't the promise to the 72 here in Luke 10. And still there's something so wonderful so powerful about Jesus and the kingdom of God that is bursting into the kingdom of this world that enables miracles to happen and be worked through the broader group of disciples. And Jesus shares in their excitement. This is so wonderful to me. He he doesn't uh, dismiss their excitement. He shares in it. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. And I I personally don't think this was meant to be taken literally. It's more of a picture of what is happening as the kingdom of God burst into the kingdom of man. Uh, Jesus is going to be on the throne and Satan is dethroned. But more than anything, Jesus is saying, you did it. Well done. I saw Satan fall like lightning. He's a toothless lion in front of you. Well done, disciples. Jesus is commending them, and he's saying that there's something truly special about what is happening amongst them. Be excited about that. You did it. But that's not where this passage ends. This is all great, but there is a turn, a very important turn that shows us the big takeaway truth from this expedition. Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why ought the disciples rejoice? It's because they were successful in the mission that they were sent out upon. It's because people actually listened to them and received the peace that they offered. Is it because demons fell down before them? Is that why we ought to rejoice as we set out in mission as disciple-making disciples? Because, Because of what we accomplish? No. No, we rejoice because our names are written in heaven. Because we're known by God. Our passage closes with these words, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. The found are blessed. As one pastor says, what the Lord has done for you is always more important than what you have done for the Lord. What the Lord has done for you is always more important than what you have done for the Lord. We're the found. We could have been the lost and we could have been sitting under that great judgment, but instead our names are written in pen in heaven. We have an inheritance that is pure and undefiled waiting for us. We have a hope. We can rest in God. We can glory in Christ Jesus. And so Grace, this is the message for us to store in our hearts today. Found people, find people. The lost will be judged, but the found will be blessed. And if you're in Christ, then today you are blessed and you're safe and secure in God because of Christ. We can be blessed, we can be happy, we can be full of joy, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, why? Because of Christ Jesus our Lord who set his face on Jerusalem where he would go and endure the penalty that was rightfully ours upon the cross so that we can know him and enjoy him forever rejoice let's pray father thank you for your son jesus lord we rejoice in his name we glory in his name because we have life in his name because we have peace in his name lord we are blessed and father as those who experience your blessing today and forevermore i pray lord that we would be motivated to go out into the darkness enduring rejection and Enduring difficulty, enduring danger, humbly depending on you, Lord. And I pray that we would seek to find the lost and the power of the spirit armed with the gospel. Would you motivate us? Would you help us to participate in that great mission that you have called us to and in that great thing that you are doing in the world? Lord, we want to live for your glory. So would you help us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray.